and the things that we face in this life, including death, is something that I need to hear right now. Uh, in, my, in the last month, we've had a lot of death, not only in our church, but in our family. And so I need to be preaching the words of the scripture to myself. And after the announcements today, I think that it's helpful for all of us to kind of have some time where we think deeply about the promises that God has offered to us through his son, Jesus, as we face down these enemies like death. And so today, I hope that we find comfort in God's word. I hope that we find hope in God's word. And so... Um, if, a little bit more about me. My name's, uh, like I said, I'm Andrew. I'm from Amarillo. I grew up in Amarillo. I went to WT, but even though I grew up in Amarillo, I did not know a whole lot about this area uh, of Texas. In Texas history, they do a lot of t- teaching you about the stuff that's happening between like uh, Austin and Houston and that area, but they don't really talk about the panhandle. We are forgotten people. And so uh, if you don't know much about Texas, like Texas history or, or panhandle history, that's not your fault. All right. I would say that's someone else's fault, but also I met a lot of people that are from here and grew up here, and maybe you don't know some of these stories that I'm going to talk about in a second, and I met some people that are not from here, and so I'm, I bet you may not know those, some of the stories that we're, uh, we're going to talk about this morning, but I, I, in my desire to know more about Texas history, me and my brother and my dad, we started reading a book together. It's a book called Empire of the Summer Moon. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's by a guy named S.C. Gwynn, and he's actually going to be speaking at WT here in a few weeks, but he wrote a book about the Comanche uh, Indians that were, that were living in this area primarily back in the 1800s. This book is a fat, uh, it has some fascinating stories and interesting stuff, but one of the fascinating stories is the story about Adobe Walls, so the Battle of Adobe Walls, which took place about an hour and a half east from here. Uh, the Adobe Walls, if you don't know anything about it, it's a secluded trading outpost far from Western society, but deep within what was tr- uh, Comanche territory. The outpost had already been abandoned once due to the dangers that uh, posed itself out being out in the far reaches of West Texas, where it was under constant threat of Indian attack and unpredictable weather. And we know a lot about unpredictable weather being in West Texas. That's what we are used to, right? But there was money to be made at this outpost, so traders and hunters made their way back to Adobe Walls again to begin work. The Comanches were led by a chief named Quana Parker, who took notice of these interlopers, and they were in violation of a trade agreement with the Native Americans. And along with 700 warriors, they made camp all along the bluff that was overlooking the trading outpost. Now, you can imagine the terror of these hunters and of these, uh, these traders who are looking up on top of this hill and seeing the silhouette of hundreds and hundreds of some of the most fearsome warriors who ever walked the earth. The Comanches were famous for their brutality, for their fearsomeness in battle, and their leader, Quanah Parker, was the embodiment of that reality. He was an imposing, muscular figure of mythical proportions. At that time, the Comanches were emboldened by this shaman named Issa Tai, who had prophesied to the Comanches that anyone who took up arms against the white men would surely be victorious because the Comanches would be impervious to the white men's bullets. So with this confidence instilled in them by the prophecy of Issa Tai, the Comanches charged on adobe walls, attacking the hunters and the traders that were posted there. But somehow they were repelled, even though they killed five of the hunters. The Comanches were dumbfounded, and they gathered again at the top of the bluff, overlooking adobe walls to reconsider their options. Meanwhile, down in the fort, a man named Billy Dixon picked up his Sharps rifle, and he fired on the Indian position, which is over a thousand thousand yards away. In one of the strangest and most improbable events in history, this man fired a shot that defied West Texas wind, defied even what you could imagine skill would be. 
and he struck a, a Comanche warrior who was on top of his horse, killing him. Isatai, the, 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 uh, the shaman, his words proved false. And even with the great chief, Quanta Parker, leading them, the confidence of the Comanches was completely destroyed, because, causing them to retreat. Now, we are in Psalm 16 today, and Psalm 16 speaks to the confidence that we have in our God. And maybe you face life with a great deal of confidence in everything that you do. Or maybe it's hard for you to find confidence to contend with the daily stresses and the struggles that you may face. But as the Comanches saw at Adobe Walls, nothing shakes and breaks our confidence in this life like death. Facing our mortality causes us to soberly consider how frail and fragile and inconsequential our lives can seem at times. But today I want us to see that because Jesus went confidently to the grave, we too can confidently face anything in this life, including death. So today I'm going to split up our discussion of Psalm 16 into three sections. The first section being confidence in life. Next, we're going to be looking at confidence in death. And lastly, our last point will be confidence in Christ. But let's start at the beginning. That's always a good place to start. Point number one, confidence in life. Look with me at Psalm chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. David says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So the psalmist David begins this psalm by emphasizing his confidence in God. Now, keep in mind, this is likely written while David is fleeing from his life from King Saul, who seeks to capture and to kill him. David specifically emphasizes two reasons for his confidence in this life. The first being the security that he finds in God. Look at verse 1 with me. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. In verse 1, David tells us that God is strong and powerful. And because God is strong and powerful, we can take refuge in him. David trusts God to protect him in the face of danger, in the same way that our children trust us to protect them in the face of danger. The way I describe this to my son is that even though we are weak, if God is bigger than everything, we don't have to fear anything. And in David's mind, he is no doubt confident that God is more powerful, is bigger than even King Saul. And so David doesn't need to fear anything. And since God is unchanging... We can always trust that his strength will never leave us, will never diminish, and therefore is always capable of preserving the people who call on him and giving them refuge in a dangerous world. So David's confidence is bound up in his security that he finds in a strong and powerful God. But the second reason for David's confidence in this life is the satisfaction that he finds in God. Look at verse 2 of Psalm chapter 16 with me. He says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Verse 2 assures us that God is the only source of good. And if God is the only source of good, then we have no need to look anywhere else apart from him. See, David believes that satisfaction, identity, joy are found in God and nowhere else. Whatever sin offers to us, God offers us more because God offers us himself. God isn't just good, he is better than anything else. Better than everything else in the true source of all joy. So, just to recap, David is confident that the refuge provided for us by God is better than any refuge we could provide for ourselves. 
David's also confident that God is the source of all good. So we don't need to look anywhere else. And that's David's recipe for confidence in this life. He sees God as a constant refuge for him, the source of good. And because of those two things, David is confident in this life. But even better, David reminds us that we do not hold these commitments alone or in isolation. Look at verse 3 with me, Psalm chapter 16, verse 3. As for the saints in the land, they are excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The saints are simply our brothers and sisters who find the same confidence that God will provide security and satisfaction for his people. And look how David views them. Look at the words he uses. He calls them excellent ones in whom is all my delight. I hope you feel that way about the people that are in this room with you. The people in this room with you share a kinship built on the mutual commitment to a God who gladly gives you security and satisfaction. And this shared confidence is the basis for our devotion to one another. It's why you raise your children together. It's why you celebrate together. It's why you mourn together. It's why you baptize one another, why you bury one another. Is this community at Liberty Baptist Church perfect? No. But our foundation is thicker than just shared preference. It's shared confidence in God. You are bound by something beyond your preference and your convenience. And David describes the kinship shared among the people of God, not as a duty, but as a delight. That this relationship that you share with these people in this room is not just a duty, but it's something that brings us delight and gladness. There's delight among God's people in sharing a mutual commitment to God and reliance on him. Let me say that again. There is delight among God's people in sharing of a mutual commitment to God and reliance on him. Not sharing mutual convenience, not sharing mutual preference, but mutual commitment to a God who relies on, or who we rely upon. And this extends past the walls of Liberty Baptist to places like Redeemer in Amarillo. We share the same commitment to a God who gives us refuge and satisfaction, just like you do. The people of Paramount Baptist in Amarillo, and a number of other churches that we find ourselves in relationship with. Let us be a people who delight in other Christians who are maybe even of other denominations, who share in the confidence in the power and the goodness of God. See, our confidence is in God alone, but we're not alone in that confidence. We don't have to be alone in the confidence that God gives us, and that is good news. Now, while some rest in and find confidence for this life in God, who's strong and he's the source of all good, others turn elsewhere to find satisfaction and refuge. Look at me, or look with me at verse 4 of Psalm chapter 16. The sorrow of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Here's a theologian named John Goldingay. He wrote a lot about this psalm. And one of the things that he writes about this psalm, he says, the psalm knows that if you want to enjoy a full life in this world, you're wise to look to the God who devised this life for us. It's tempting, however, to look in other directions. In Israel, it was tempting to look to other gods to offer blood libations to them. That is to offer sacrifices that involve pouring out the animal's blood, to call on them, to rely on them, to see them as the one who give good things. 
that the Psalms knows that this way leads to trouble, not fulfillment. See, David's confidence is in God, and God alone is the one who we call on, rely on, and see is the one who gives good things. But some people may look to hedge their bets by calling on or relying on and looking to other gods to, to give them good things. Because we're not confident in Yahweh, we secretly turn to other deities where we believe refuge may be found. We look to money to catch us if we fall. We turn to love to find validation and worth. We turn to alcohol to free us from the stress and the difficult days that we find at work. In the darkness of night, we look to things apart from the one true God. And in doing so, we find ourselves weak lost, isolated, devoted to something else, something less than the one true God, who as Proverbs 18 tells us is a strong tower, who the righteous run to for safety. John Calvin tells us that all who have their foundation and trust in God must necessarily, who have not their foundation and trust in God must necessarily be often in a state of uncertainty. See, those who look for security and satisfaction, will live a life marked by uncertainty, knowing that ultimately the circumstances in this life are beyond them. But the people whose confidence is in God for security and satisfaction lead lives marked by contentedness, knowing that God is powerful over all things, even our circumstances. Look with me at Psalm chapter 16, verse 5 now. The Lord is my cup. My chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Verse 7. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night my heart also instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. So King David concludes... Because he is confident in the security found in God, he doesn't have to look to anything else. Because of the security that he finds in the goodness of God, so he doesn't have to look elsewhere for goodness, he he concludes in verse 9, Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. See, confidence in this life is found in God alone. But the confidence that God's people will be okay goes beyond this life, which brings us to point number two, confidence in death. Look with me at Psalm chapter 16, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, this is kind of a confusing or maybe cryptic verse. First of all, what does Sheol mean? Well, Sheol just literally means the grave, where the dead go. But even with that little bit of help, it's still cryptic. Who is David talking about in verse 10? Thankfully, the scripture doesn't leave us to guess at its meaning. So when we can, we should always allow the scripture to interpret itself. We should allow the scripture to tell us what the scripture means. And that's exactly what the scriptures do. If you would um, keep your finger in Psalm chapter 16, but turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. So the fifth book of the New Testament. We're going to be in chapter 2, starting in verse 22. This is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. So 
So if you can keep your finger in Psalm chapter 16 and another finger in Acts chapter 2, we might be back and forth a little bit. But this is Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter, speaking at Pentecost, says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the mostly Jewish audience no doubt knew who Jesus was. In fact, many of them probably played a hand in the death of Jesus. But Jesus' death was not the end of the story, and they knew that. Acts chapter 2, verse 24, Peter continues, God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. See, Jesus was resurrected because it was impossible for him to be held by death. And the raising of the dead is significant because death is significant. When I was in college, I studied music, and one of my favorite composers was a composer named Gustav Mahler. You don't need to have to know very much about him, but I'll tell you a little bit about his story. He's one of the most powerful and influential composers who ever lived, and he knew deeply how significant death was. In 1889, Mahler lost his father, followed six months later by both his sister and his mother, causing him him to become the primary caretaker for his four younger siblings. Death was this powerful and present reality for Mahler in his youth, and Mahler even wrote a piece to cope with the tragedy of death, and he called this piece Funeral Rites. It's not a very long piece, but it's a dark and unrelenting piece in which the undefeated power of death comes for us all. A few years later, while attending the funeral of a dear friend and mentor, Mahler found himself in the presence of a familiar foe, death. Mahler sat pondering the familiar questions that always accompany death, and he he wrote down later in his life some of the questions that were running through his head. He said, what's after death? Why did you live? Why did you suffer? Is life nothing but a huge, terrible joke? Is it all an empty dream? Or has this life of ours and our death a meaning? If we are to go on living, we must answer this question. So there, amidst these questions that many unbelievers ask, Mahler heard a poem titled Resurrection. In this poem, the words say, Arise, yes, you will arise from the dead, my dust, after a short rest. Now this idea of resurrection struck Mahler like a bolt of lightning. Death was not the end of Christ's story, and for the people of God, it isn't the end of our story. Resurrection is not a one-off miracle that happened to Jesus. It's something that happens to us. Death was the end of the story, but because of resurrection, it is a doorway to eternal life made possible by Jesus Christ. Death was undefeated, but because of resurrection, there is one who is powerful to defeat death, and he promises to save his people. Death was forever, but because of resurrection, death is only for now. Douglas McKelvey, in his book, Every Moment Holy, he says, Death is not the period that ends a sentence. It is but a comma, a a brief pause before the fuller thought unfolds into eternal life. So, follower of Christ, have hope that death is not the end. It was not the end for Jesus. And because, of, because death was not the end of Jesus' life, we can face that great enemy, death, confident, but, uh, that, with confidence that is granted to us by the victorious Jesus Christ who promises that we too 
will overcome death just as he did. See, resurrection is not the opposite of death. It's the undoing of death. It's a sign to all the universe that death is no longer undefeated. See, for Mahler, who was raised in a Jewish home, the doctrine of resurrection and a resurrected Savior was not familiar to him. But death was very familiar. The news that Jesus had defeated death inspired Mahler to write one of his greatest works, his second symphony, which is called the Resurrection Symphony. In this new piece, Mahler took his old piece, the Funeral Rites, and he repurposed it and made it the first part of his new symphony to show that because of Christ, death is not an end, but a beginning. And the piece reaches its culmination at the end of the piece where Mahler tells us through a singer that life is not in vain if we are in Christ. Eternal life and everlasting love is our destiny. Why? Because resurrection matters. And Gustav Mahler knew it, and Peter knew it, and David also knew it. Look with me at Acts chapter 2, verse 25 now. Peter is quoting David. He says, For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or Shale, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So just as Mahler, who grew up in a Jewish home, he knew no hope of resurrection. Many of these Jewish men that Peter is speaking to could have never expected that the Messiah would die and he would come back from the dead. See, back in that time, as far as people knew when someone died, they stayed dead. But even the great King David was looking to the resurrection for his hope in this life. And Peter confirms that. Look at verse 29. This is a really interesting verse. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. See, Peter is telling his audience that David is not talking about himself in Psalm chapter 16, verse 10. Why? Because they all knew where David was buried. His body had experienced the corruption of the grave. But who is David talking about in Psalm chapter 16, verse 10? Peter tells us, verse 30, being therefore a prophet, And knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. See, David wasn't talking about himself, but Jesus in Psalm chapter 16, verse 10. It was Jesus who did not taste the corruption of death because death could not hold him. Death is the consequence of sin, but Jesus knew no sin, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us. Because Jesus went confidently to the grave and rose again, he promises that those who place their faith in him can face the grave with confidence, knowing they will rise again as he most certainly did. Which brings us to point number three, and our last point, confidence in Christ. Look with me at Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Have you noticed the language that Peter has been using? 
Acts chapter 2, verse 36, he, he asked the audience to know for certain. In verse 29, he says, may I say to you with confidence, because of Jesus' resurrection, let the people of God be assured. Let them know for certain. Let them be confident in two things. First, that Jesus is Lord. In other words, Jesus is God. Resurrection proves that he is powerful to defeat the enemies that we could never defeat. Sinners who call on the name of Jesus find refuge from the power of death through the resurrection of our Lord. And secondly, it asks us to know for certain that Jesus is the Christ. We truly have no good apart from God. All we bring before God is our sin, yet sinners who call on the name of Jesus find goodness, credit to them, to them through the righteous life of Jesus, who died as a substitution in our place. Sinners find righteousness in Christ, so we don't have to look anywhere else apart from him. As Paul puts it in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, confidence in anything in this life disappoints. It always does. But confidence in Christ saves. So liberty. My hope is that we can leave here today confident, even with the news that we face, the difficult news that we face of death in our lives, death surrounding us, and whatever we may find ourselves surrounded with. As we sang in the song earlier, Christ in power resurrected, as we will be when he comes. So we are filled not only with confidence, but hope because of Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather we may be people from different churches, from different cities, but we have a shared confidence in you. We have a shared hope because of what your son Jesus did on the cross. That is, he willfully went to the cross and laid down his life for us, paying the penalty for our sin. That he rose again, showing that he, his sacrifice has paid everything in full. So Lord, let us come before you as weak people, as sinners, let us lay our sin before you, knowing that you forgive those who come before you, that you are faithful and just. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we can face this difficult life that we have to face with confidence. We're thankful that we can face this difficult life we have to face with hope. And we're thankful that we can face this life because of what Jesus has done, not because of what we can do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.